Hi everyone, this is Fergus Horsfall. I am a reporter for CityWire Switzerland and this is the first episode of our new podcast, which is called Thanks, I Quit. The podcast explores interesting figures in Swiss finance who have moved into a different field. Now, for our first episode here, we have Klaus Velershoff, who is well known for his time as chief economist of UBS, where he was for several years. But Klaus has also, since leaving UBS, founded not one, not two, but three other companies. So in this episode, he discusses what he learned from his time at the biggest bank in Switzerland, um, how he made sure that his three new firms stand out from the crowd, and why he wouldn't want to lead his company into an IPO. Thank you very much, Klaus, for coming on to the podcast. The first thing that I wanted to ask you is you spent a long time at UBS. You ended up on the group management board. Looking back, how do you view your time that you spent there? Oh, it was a fantastic time. I mean, um, I, I joined Swiss Bank Corporation, which was one of the predecessors to UBS. UBS is a merger between two Swiss banks initially um, in 1995. And I've learned so much of those 14 years that I have been with the bank and the challenges we had growing, growing, growing. Swiss Bank Corporation was number three in Switzerland, and we ended up being the largest wealth manager in the world. So that's that was quite a journey. It was very, very, very interesting. The last two years were a little bit more difficult. That was the time of the financial crisis. But I think everybody has to go to a period like that. Did that have a big impact, your experience of working through the financial crisis when you then went out on your own accord? It rather delayed my leaving um, the place, um, and maybe I need to explain this. Um, yeah. I, I was I joined the, the bank directly from university. I finished my PhD, started as an economist, was responsible for Swiss macro, and two years after I've been there, somebody had the crazy idea to promote a 33-year-old person to become the chief economist of a bank, and that was a, a real challenge. And was that was that was obviously great fun, but it all, also told me that whatever I would do, I, I couldn't do this until I was 65, <laughs> you know, going into pension like my predecessor actually did. So I, I knew from the start of that assignment uh, that, 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 that there needed to be a, a, a second life. And, 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 you know, growing with the bank, growing responsibilities, I ended up being the chief investment officer of the private bank. Um, that, that was obviously, a, a, a tr- that was really a great experience. But still, um, you know, <laughs> you need to do something after that. And so I was on the lookout, actually. And I, and the plan was to, to leave um, before the financial crisis started. Not that I knew that it was coming, but um, uh, in terms of years, at least. Was that perhaps a time where it was particularly daunting to think, I'm going to set out on my own as a finance professional and we've just seen this huge upheaval? No, it was really a progression of uh, of a development within myself. As I said before, the last six years, I was responsible for the private bank's discretionary mandates, the performance of those. I was the chairman of the investment committee. That, at those, in those days, was a good 250 billion Swiss francs. Uh, and and you know, as an economist, um, that's a new world. You learn a lot. You ask some crazy questions like, "What is the benchmark for our benchmark?" And people with a with a finance degree look at you with very glazy eyes when you say these things. But when you take that seriously, you start to investigate, start to improve things, 
And um, I think we're, I was ready, we were ready, we started as a team uh, to really explore new ways in uh, managing private wealth, in, in, in managing money. So I, th I think the time was right. The, the fact that there was a financial crisis actually delayed um, um, our plans uh, just a little bit because we were in the middle of it. UBS was a heavily affected bank, as um, maybe not everybody knows these days. And there was a there was a feeling of loyalty I I felt to stay along and stick around during the worst part of that crisis. Are there ever elements that you miss of being in the management at such a large company? No, not really. I, I, I but that's but that's a very personal thing. I never wanted to be a you know a big boss. I never was. I never liked the idea that people would be afraid of me. Um, that I had to decide on 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 people's um, uh, economic well being. Um, promotions, bonuses, these were the things I, I really didn't enjoy very much. And, and I have to say, I, I feel much more comfortable in the environment where I'm an, I'm an advisor, I operate in a very small team, preferable, most of them equals, partners. Um, that's, that's the way I like to work. Maybe I was never born to be in such a large organization. And by some form of, I would say, good luck, I ended up there because it taught me a lot. It taught me many lessons that were very helpful. And I've been applying ever since. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So then um, once once you did set out on your own, um, did, did you set out with a very clear idea of what you wanted to do? Or did you more just set out with an idea of, I want to build something on my own and I'm going to sort of leave and then work out how to, how to build that? No, no, it was, a, it was, it was really driven by, by ideas of uh, how private banking, the management of private wealth actually could also operate, could also work. I mean, we, we looked at all the assumptions we were making within the bank and uh, I have to say they were taken for very good reasons, but um, most of the finance that is applied still today in, uh, in private wealth managers and also in institutional wealth managers actually stems from the 1970s. And while that was very appropriate to use these assumptions in the 70s, it probably is less so today. So we wanted to find new ways of doing uh, wealth management. I think we found them, and I think we've proven we found them, in a way, we, we try to reinvent um, private banking, and, and that's what we've been doing, either as an advisor or uh, with uh, my second company, Zwei Wealth, uh, also as an entrepreneur. Are there any um, particular assumptions that you could name that you think are really per pervasive yes. and particularly outdated? <laughs> yeah, very simple things. Um, I mean, the, the economic model behind asset vacation, for example, assumes that the person that invests the money lives forever has uh, homogeneous preferences that never change. I mean, we have a divorce rate of 50%, and yes, we do die. Uh, we need liquidity. That person is in the model that drives asset allocation in, in most companies. There's no need for liquidity. Liquidity is just another asset. That, uh, it's a, it, there are a lot of things that, again, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and maybe even in the first decade of this century, were assumptions that were very wise to take because you didn't have the computational power, you didn't have the understanding how these act things actually work. But we don't no longer need to take them, and we should move on. So it's it's a it's a it's an issue of if you want to applied finance, applied economics, it's um, it's real research and development within a field which is at least that's my perception highly static and and doesn't move very much.
Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting there as well that you picked up on the computational power and maybe how a lot of people are being left behind because they're they're not they're not willing to use digitalization perhaps as expansively as they could. I mean, do you think there is a bit of a mentality that people see digitalization as something for, oh, maybe my client needs an app or maybe this, but they don't fully appreciate the breadth of what can be done with digitalization? Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, this whole um, uh, e-finance or fintech or however you want to call this um, is a is a fascinating and very interesting development with many little branches ideas that just you know, somebody probably needs to put together uh, in a, in a reasonable way. There are also many things that, in my view, are not really helpful, at least not in private wealth management. Um, uh, we are, we we know this from having conducted the research with clients, um, both for wealth managers, but but also for um, our own purposes, uh, that the, the fundamental need of a private individual that wants to invest uh, money uh, cannot be fulfilled by a robo-advisor, for example. Uh, so so that, I mean, it's the technology today, I think, is something that we should use. We should use it in a smart way, but we should never forget what the value proposition towards our clients is and 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 we should formulate one which we actually can fulfill and i think on both ends the large players in the wealth management markets have failed miserably until today yeah and i mean you have actually i mean you've been quite scathing not just of large players that you think are failing at wealth management but i mean also financial entrepreneurs so like individual people who have left banks to start up their own wealth manager that you don't think are being sufficiently unique i mean you told me before that you think Many wealth managers are like generic washing powder brands. And as you say, you've also said that many of the smaller wealth managers treat their clients miserably. I mean, how do you as a kind of financial entrepreneur make sure that you're not being generic, that you're not launching a product that's not sufficiently differentiated? Uh, excellent question, because there, there always is the, the, the danger once you stop doing something which you like, that you forget to 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 have a reality check on that. And and I would, I would, even as an economist, I would say even the, the the fact that you grow in the marketplace does not necessarily mean that you are not doing something very strange, which is not fulfilling a client's need. So it is very important to constantly readdress that question: What is it that we want to want to promise to our clients, and can we actually fulfill it? And and when I was when I'm critical with banks, this part comes from my advisory businesses business uh, activities I've had in the last twelve years, um, and I, I have to say there was not a single case where we walked into a private bank uh, and, and and asked the advisors, so why should I bank with you? Where you would get a differentiated answer, and if you ask that question yourself, why should I bank with you? Um, and you and you don't start to stutter. I think you're on the right path. And what what do they answer once uh, once you have given them your advice? How do, how do you make them differentiate themselves better? Well, very often there are very natural points um, where uh, a, a promise can be linked to the identity of the firm, and and that already in itself can be very helpful. Um, we had a recent. Uh, case uh, of a private bank, um, really a company, a company for many generations owned uh, privately and 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 with a very strong culture. Um, the employees, I mean, they would give their left and right arm both probably for for the family. 
Um, and um, we, 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 we welded that into their promise towards their, um, towards their clients. So they, they do believe in entrepreneurship. They do believe in responsibility. And, and one of the uh, features, for example, that a, a discretionary mandate would have is that the, that part that goes into entrepreneurial activities into equity investments, for example, um, is focused on family-owned companies. Now, that, that's an example of how you could do it. Um, and, and, and if you live that culture yourself um, and you have a credible message, if your advisors have that culture and, and can convey that message, and if you don't over-promise, um, I, I think that makes a hell of a difference. And I think the data shows it. Uh, private wealth managers that have a differentiated, differentiated and credible claim don't grow two or three percent faster than the competition. They they don't grow double digit faster than the competition. Yeah, I mean, then on on the topic of growth, I mean, you you set out you you launched one company. Uh, you now you've now got three. Um, so is 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 this part of this was this something you you planned before or was this another case of I spied other opportunities that I really wanted to make the most of yeah usually the i try to convince other people um um of embarking with me on that road and so it happened the first company in 2009 really is an advisory company with uh, with senior partners where we try to help uh, in, in particular financial institutions to get a better investment process better value proposition um, everything that, that you, you need to to be to have a differentiated offering um, out of that uh, arose a, a second business idea, and I was very interested, very intrigued by the fact that nobody really from our clients really wanted to pick up on it. And, and there was a point where we said, "Why, why don't we do it ourselves?" And that's Swy Wealth, the second company, which is also an advisory firm um, that directs itself not at financial institutions but at private clients directly. So it's B two C, as we say in our uh, lingo, and 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 there the value proposition is very simple. Um, we, we try to help you find an, an asset manager or wealth manager um, that actually can deliver on their promise and doesn't uh, financially um, ruin you in the process. Uh, and, and that's a very simple promise. And we've been very, very successful keeping it. The company grows very handsomely and, and, and gives, gives us um, uh, comfort. And the third company is it, maybe it's exaggerated to say it is a real company yet it's growing out of our own family office um it's it, it's an attempt of trying to show that you can do asset allocation differently uh than what 95 percent or 96 percent of the market is currently doing so i mean it's uh clearly you so you've got you've got your three companies i'd imagine these aren't the only three ideas that you've had in the over a decade since you left ubs is a large element of this actually deciding which ideas you shouldn't pursue? Do you have a lot of ideas that you have to say, no, no, I really want to do this, but actually this is a bad idea? Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm afraid I'm not a very, I'm not overly creative person. Uh, and I do believe you only have very few good ideas in, in your whole life. So I'm, I can't say I had 26 ideas that are brilliant. And, and actually, um, if there were 20 in 12 years, that I would say that's a great performance. And if 17 of those were used by our clients um, and, and, and actually implemented, um, I would be extremely happy. I'm, I'm not sure. 
I would never try to try out every every reasonable idea. But of course, the, 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 there is a phase where you, you think, wow, this is it, and you need to challenge that. You need to get other people to challenge you in the process. And and, and some of the things that we initially might have felt they were great um, obviously died in the process. Do you have any examples of ones that died, or is that supremely confidential? We had some ideas uh, in, in asset allocation, uh, which I, I, I'm very glad in hindsight that uh, we realized early on in the process that they wouldn't work. Yeah. Um, I mean, I also uh, you, men- you mentioned Zvi Wealth, uh, which was I think launched by yourself and Patrick Muller. Um, I spoke to him a couple of months ago, um, and he said to me that uh, he quit his job to take three years to work out what clients wanted and build it from scratch. And if it didn't work after that, we, him and yourself, would drink whiskey and get a new job. <laughs> Um, is is that a mentality that he's inherited from you? Is, is, is no, that no, he's he... a great guy. I mean, it's for fun to work with, as uh, your quote obviously shows. Um, no, but it's, uh, I think the history of Zwei Wealth um, is a history of learning. And, and I really like that about that company. Um, while at Velosof & Partners, which is the first advisory firm, uh, you learn on every project, um, but I would say the company itself, from you know what it does and how it does it, you cynically you might say after twelve years, um, um, this this process of advising people, not the content, but the process of advising people, is so generic that there's a, a certain form of repetition. But in in Swai Wealth, we started out really with the idea of of trying to learn, 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 implement, do proof of concept, do, don't do, scrap, <laughs> and 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 that was very smart because um, what Swai Wealth is doing is a new way of private banking now, and and for any person or any group of people um, to think that they could you know create this on a drawing board. Um, out of um, thick air or thin air, um, I, that is quite pretentious. And I, I'm very glad we're both not people who believe that they are uh, super, super smart. We, we believe we are daring and we are, you know, we have some good ideas, but we also very much believe in practicality. So one of the mottos, for example, of my work always has been truth is what works. I'm, I've never been a dogmatic um, and it's really about the the empirical proof that what you do is the right thing. I mean, I think it's interesting that you mentioned earlier um, that you you're kind of glad not to be on the ma- the management board of UBS anymore because it's not, I guess, not your kind of dream job, and you don't want to be having to manage people in that way. But I mean, you're now the chairman of Svi Wealth, which is expanding. I mean, pretty fast. I think in it's it's hiring. Is it something like? 10 to 20 um, new wealth management consultants a year, which is fairly rapid growth considering it only started a few years ago. So are you not going to end up having to be in a similar management role again and then maybe have to go off and just do something smaller? Or I, I mean, it's a long way to become UBS, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and I'm, this company is growing fast. I think we have a, a very attractive offering for the clients uh, it, 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 in, in this area, in the next five years or 10 years, I think it's manageable. And it's it's not yet what uh, a large company like UBS is. But, you know, come a step to, towards the, the financial markets, um, if we IPO the company, I think we seriously need to consider to find a new chairman. 
if you IPO the company is is that in the long term the long term plans the long term plan is is really to rock the boat to to have an impact on the private wealth management industry we are highly highly intrinsically motivated the, the damn thing is it, it, the the concept seems to work we're growing fast and we're creating value and uh in order to uh allow a company to prosper there there might come a moment in time where this is actually necessary yes i mean i th- i think that's um an interesting perhaps psychological point that you just really really don't want to be in charge of something that's really really big i mean do you think that makes you stand out from a lot of people who launch their own company perhaps do it because they want to be in charge of something that's really big and then potentially have the, have it pay them out a lot of money you know, as you might have noticed, by my, my English is not that good. So I don't like the standout vocabulary. You, if you had said you're a crazy nerd and, 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 uh, you know, I would have gladly accepted that. And if I could trade it for standout, yes. <laughs> I mean, I think you're being harsh on your English, but if you'd like to describe yourself as a crazy nerd, then I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to decide on your behalf. I mean, I think also because you've, um, Perhaps one of the elements that might be nice about being independent is, do, do you think that you're able to be a bit more outspoken than you would be able to if you're in the folds of someone else's organization? Because you, you know, you do have your opinions and you, you do make them public. Yes, I, probably that's, um, that's an important element why I enjoy this phase in my professional career so much. But I, I have to say, and I don't want to say anything critical about, about UBS, in, in those days, in, uh, as a chief economist, global function, um, visiting whatever, 50 plus countries every year to, to see clients, uh, events, media, um, was a great time. Uh, th- there were some limits, as always, if when you were working in a listed company, when it comes to information about the company itself. Um, but in, in, in the function, in, in, you know, investment views, opinions, the, the word economy, uh, we were, we were absolutely free. I, I, I remember only one instance when uh, I got a phone call from a board member from the, um, can't say who, um, uh, asking me whether we couldn't tone our message down a little bit. And this is when one of my employees had written about, uh, I think the term he used was Stone Age monetarism at the Swiss National Bank. And if that's your prime regulator, maybe that's a bit strong wording, uh, but they would never uh, intrude there. So we, there, there was a large element of freedom there as well. Um, uh, but in, in terms of um, developing a new business, you need that freedom. You need the you know you need the, the you need to say what you think. You need to create. If you want to create something new, you need to step on some people's toes. That's part of it. Yeah, I mean, I because I know that, like you mentioned, interestingly, you mentioned the Swiss National Bank there in relation to when you're at UBS. I mean, you've made public various opinions about where where you think about central banks, not only the Swiss National Bank, but I think you told the NZZ newspaper, which any Swiss listeners will be quite familiar with recently, that you think a fuse has blown at the Swiss National Bank. I mean, maybe this uh, they wouldn't be so happy with this if you said this at another organi- organization. Yeah, but the times are also changing. Um, I, I, and and the, the, the issue I think I was referring to 
is really a big issue. I mean, and, and it's as well as we're talking, um, central banks in general start to realize that they've put themselves into a very, very, very tight corner. And from my point of view, I would say um, that was something that, you know, we could see years in advance that this one day might happen. Maybe we couldn't determine the day when this would happen, but that it would happen, that we'd see more inflation, that we'd have this stark choice that they now have to make between higher uh, raising interest rates and where that reducing asset prices um, and, or, and or fighting inflation. And that was absolutely clear. Uh, and in the case of the Swiss National Bank, and maybe that's also not familiar topic for most of our listeners. Um, the Swiss National Bank is the central bank amongst the um, industrialized countries who's been most expansionist in, in, uh, since the financial crisis. Um, and and um, the numbers are big and frightening. So, uh, you know, this fuse thing, yeah, maybe these days you could rather say that than in the 1995, but um, I, I would still stand to it and say this is very, very serious, and, and we, we 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 really need to address the issue fundamentally. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, to to be fair, you know, we have spoken to people who are CIOs, etc., who have had quite sharp perspectives on on um, central banks, including the Swiss National Bank. And you talk a little bit there about uh, you feel like you need to speak speak up, or that's something that's important. Um, and I mean, is that also part of what you're doing? Do you see yourself as having a bit of public role now? Because you're also lecturing, aren't you, um, at a university? Yeah, I wouldn't put it that way because um, a, a role is, is uh, that, you know, there's something that, you know, something that other people expect from you and you are willing to actually deliver on that. Uh, and um, what I'm what I'm aware of is that after having been uh, chief economist of the largest bank in this country for 12 years, and, and 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 UBS is by far the largest bank. It's hardly comparable to to um, to, a, to a country like the United Kingdom, for example. There's no dominant bank as UBS here is in Switzerland. Um, that that was a position where you were in the light, or I was in the limelight. Um, all the time, and um, uh, and I accept that expectation that if there's if something goes wrong in the financial world or in the business cycle, that media turn to myself and I try to give my very fair, clear view. I've always tried to stay clear of economic policy issues. So, and this is a country which has a direct democracy. And I've always made it a, a trademark not to take a position on any of those things that we were voting on. And I, I intend to keep that. I, I think that would be misusing the trust that has you know, grown over the years, um, my time at UBS and also afterwards. Actually, I would say I had an even higher media presence in this country after I had resigned from my UBS position uh, than I had before. Most of what we've been talking about here has been what you've been doing since UBS, but inevitably UBS has come attached to your name. And probably whenever you read about yourself in one of the Swiss newspapers, it will say ex-UBS chief economist Klaus Wellershoff. So, I mean, is that a slightly odd experience that you've actually been doing other things for so long, but still people are asking you about this? Yeah, in a way, yes, but I, I think um, I'm very grateful for that time. And I... I, I 
you know, I've this this is part of my past, and I I have no problem in in standing by it. So uh, it doesn't really face me. I mean, it's I'm 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 I'm, I'm cool about it. Um, uh, in particular, as uh, since I have never taken a stance on economic policy issues, this has not led to a situation that really puts me into a corner. Um, that can ha- sometimes happen. Many of my chief economist colleagues have that issue because they've been voicing a very clear political agenda, mm-hmm. and I've I've never done that. And and by that, I hope to have. Um, um, gained the trust of the people that when I talk about the business cycle, the currency, the Swiss National Bank, um, that I give my professional view and, and, and not my ideological biases. And I mean, so going forwards, you know, you you founded three companies. Um, I mean, is is the, is there a fourth that's um, sitting sitting in your head? And and what have you got planned going forwards? <laughs> I, I, I'm, you know, part of my business is predicting, <laughs> but I, I'm not. I, I'm, I will not predict that. I cannot predict that. Uh, if if there's something that's just tempting and interesting, I'm happy to be part of it. But at the same time, I have to. I have to also say three is a lot. Huh? I mean, if you really want to uh, make a success out of three companies, uh, even though they're in a way, you know, in one sector, um, there is a limit to. Um, to that, in particular, as you mentioned before, as I still like to teach at university and I collect old books and <laughs> I have a life outside of the financial services sector and outside of economics as well. 